Welcome to SCD Church's podcast. You can always join us for our live services Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings out at our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our services live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. Thanks so much for listening. Joby Slaw has been a pastor for many, many years. He founded a, a church outside Dallas called Cross Timbers and now is the, is the uh, legacy pastor there. Uh, and he has founded... Um, uh, I keep wanting to say Kobe, you know, because L.A., Kobe. It's Gobi Ministries, uh, but that's not the reason he's here. He's here because I met him, and I was so encouraged and so moved and impacted by him, his, just who he is, his character, his story, and I, I realized that this guy is somebody you guys need to meet. And, and not only do you need to meet him, you need to hear his story and what he's doing now because it is so incredibly relevant in the world we're living in today. Uh, so would you guys welcome Toby with me? Toby might be better. I might <laughs> no, get a better no, push. No, no, no. Move that table over right. right. Hey, I need y'all to be awake. It's like 7 a.m. in Dallas, Texas right now. <laughs> I'm going to need some energy from you guys today. I'm honored to be here. Um, I have this deep desire when I travel like I'm doing now and come to places I've never been. I have this deep desire uh, to answer a question that a lot of you are asking right now. Why in the world should I listen to that guy? I mean, that's what I do. Podcast, a speaker, it's like, why should I listen to that guy? What, what does he know about the subject he's about to teach us? And I learned a few years ago in a leadership conference that the greatest way to give people context to uh, your life is this guy said, everybody has at least one story that has happened in their life that kind of defines who they are. And I, we've tried this now at dinner parties and small groups where everyone goes around, you tell one short story so people can get to know each other. So can I tell you a story? This is where you say yes, because I'm going to do it anyway. Okay? The less enthusiastic you are, the longer this is going to take. How's that? Does that work? Uh, so I grew up in a small South Texas town, very small, about 15 minutes from the Texas Gulf Coast. Um, I lived near what in Texas we called the beach. And until I went to California and Florida, I really thought it was a beach. It's really not. Uh, but my parents were both public educators. My mom was a fifth grade math teacher, gave me my first B ever. That's a true story. Uh, and ended being an elementary school librarian. My father was a coach, an administrator. He uh, was in public schools for 42 years, my mom for 35 years. All of that to say we didn't have any money, uh, which was okay because nobody else in our town had money. We didn't know any different. But in the summer with two boys, my parents... I have the memories of two things. The first thing is we went to the Astrodome in Houston all the time to watch the Houston Astros. I thought it was because my dad was a sports fan. I found out later it was because it cost 50 cents to park, a dollar to sit in the bleachers in the outfield and the seats in the outfield. We took peanut butter, jelly sandwiches, and a thermos of water. That's what we did. And we watched him lose 25, 30 times a summer. The other thing we did is we went to the beach. Like many of you here on the West Coast, we went to the beach like other people go to the park. Had a great aunt named Blanche, and Aunt Blanche would let us use her beach house, and we would go for weeks upon end. And now, that was my life. And I'll never forget when I was seven years old, there's this moment that really defines me. Seven 
years old and the phone rang at our house. And some of you next generation don't understand this, but we had phones that plugged into the wall. And if you won't, weren't there, guess what? Nobody talked to each other. It was crazy and healthy and all those kind of things. And uh, mom answered the phone and I heard her gasp and say, oh no. And dad ran in and she hung up and they, she was crying and they began to talk. And I walked in and I said, hey, what's wrong? And they told me that one of our family friends had died at the beach that day, had drowned. In fact, I asked my dad about it later. I said, Dad, am I remembering this right? And he said, oh, yeah, there were six in our circle of people that we knew that, that drowned at Surfside Beach growing up. And I said to Dad, I said, Dad, what was he doing? Well, he was surf fishing. And I said, how do you drown surf fishing? I'd watch those guys, right? They're in water up to their knees. And dad began to teach me about the undertow and about how you swim against it until it fatigues you to no end. And he said, sometimes, Toby, they don't find the bodies for weeks. And my dad, being a coach, looked at me and said, hey, son, look at me. That's why you always have to be careful at the beach. Go to bed. So I went to bed. Anybody an overthinker in here? Anybody? Some of you are such overthinkers, you're thinking about whether you're an overthinker. Um, am I an overthinker? I don't know. Sometimes, you know, that was me. That is me. And I laid in bed that night and I thought, what if I drown? I wonder how long it takes for them to find my body. I wonder what it feels like to drown. Who would come to my funeral? Now, I'm a little boy that doesn't understand theology yet. I didn't understand that the Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. That's just a Bible way of saying, your life will travel in the direction of your thoughts. And if you think about something long enough, what, what began as a possibility, you will convince yourself it's a reality. And I distinctly remember going to sleep that night, Tears running down the sweet, this little seven-year-old boy's face. You know, sometimes when I tell this, I, I, I get emotional because I feel so sorry for that kid. And he's, I'm looking at the ceiling seven saying, please, God, don't let me drown. Please, God, don't let me drown. Having no idea that for the next 52 years of my life, that would be the number one prayer that I pray. Please, God. Don't let me drown. Now, I'm not fearful of drowning in water. I haven't been in ocean water past my ankles since that day, which people kind of giggle. It's very irrational. It's very real to me. Uh, no, uh, I have an anxiety and panic disorder. And the best way I know to describe it to you is it feels like I'm drowning. My wife, Micah, who is here, if you were talking to her, would tell you that I call it the black wave. You sense it coming. But you have no control over the wave. So let me say it this way. My name is Toby. I love Jesus with all of my heart. I don't love Jesus because... 
simply because one day he keeps me out of hell. I love Jesus because I'd be in hell tomorrow without him. I believe the Bible to be true, every word of it. I am, have been baptized and filled with his spirit and there's not a day go by that I don't ask Jesus to take this away from me and to fill me again with his spirit. I do my best to walk by faith and I have an anxiety and pain disorder and people don't know what to do with me. Those who don't know Jesus can't understand why I would serve a God that would let me, their words, suffer like that. And those who know Jesus, many have given in to the myth that if I just prayed harder, if I just read the Bible more, if I was just more holy and spiritual, surely this wouldn't be a challenge for me. So if you're looking for someone to give you three biblical steps today that you never will battle depression or anxiety again, you might want to go to brunch. But I want to tell you what I have learned about what real freedom is and how to ride the wave. Because I'm talking to two groups of people here today. I'm talking to some of you who fight the same fight that I fight. You may fight it in the quiet of the corners. You may, like me, do everything you can, what I used to do, trying to hide it at all costs. And then the rest of you are those who have people that you know and you love that are fighting the same battle. And I don't know you, so I don't say this lightly, but you're not helping it's not that your heart is in the, not in the right place, but you don't fully understand the battle that we're under and your well-intentioned words aren't helping. I'm gonna teach some of you how to ride the wave and figure out what the real battle is all about. You know, people ask me, well, what do you have to be anxious about? The answer is I have nothing. It's called a disorder. I make stuff up, okay? I'm not talking about I'm anxious about a moment. I'm talking about waking up in the middle of the night with my heart pounding out of my chest, breathing hard, the life feeling like the life is being sucked out of me for no reason at all. So don't tell me, just don't think about it. That's not helping I want you to understand what my battle and your battle really is. My battle isn't anxiety. It's a, it's a battle to believe the truth when the truth doesn't feel like the truth. We all know if we, the verse, right? You're in the early service, so you're probably a believer. You know the verse. <laughs> Jesus promised you will know the truth and the truth will set you. We all can say that one, right? But we fail to realize, look at me, everybody, that a lie believed has the same potential to put you in captivity that the truth does to set you free. We love that the truth will set us free, but we forget that a lie believed 
has the same potential to put us in captivity that the truth does to set us free. And see, the pain that we face when we're battling for our mental wellness, the problem isn't the anxiety. The problem isn't the depression. The problem is our human tendency to isolate in those moments. Because when I isolate that little voice, you know the little voice. It's never like reminding you of how great you are. That little voice is not talking about your highlights, right? That little voice is saying, you'll never be happy again. It will always be like this, and it's your fault. God doesn't care about you. And that isolation, that voice gets louder and louder and louder. And what, uh, for like seven-year-old little Toby, what was a possibility, you convince yourself is a reality. At its core, whether you have a, uh, a disorder or you're on that end of the spectrum of mental health battles, whether uh, you're battling uh, you know, a bipolar disorder, uh, something that needs a different level of care, or no matter whether you're on the other end of the spectrum, which is you're anxious because you live in a world that makes you anxious at the moment, and you're trying to fight it off, the fact of the matter is the core of that battle is a battle to believe the truth when it doesn't feel like the truth. Okay? So can I give you three truths today that every body battles especially when they're fighting for their mental wellness. Would that be okay with everybody? Again, you ought to say yes because I'm doing it anyway and it won't take as long. Okay? Uh, three truths. I want you to write these truths down. Number one, where most of us begin when we find ourselves battling emotionally is, well, there must be something wrong with God because my life isn't working. Right? It's, it's the Bible is true for everybody else but me. That the God of the Bible, well, that was in the Bible. He doesn't work that way in the world today. Because I loved him. I've asked him to take it away. I've served him. And still, I am find myself in this predicament. So God doesn't work for me. Any of you ever been so discouraged that you pray and you feel like your prayers don't get past the ceiling? Anybody besides me? Anybody ever feel that way? Two hands if you're charismatic. Raise them. You know why God feels like he's past the ceiling? Because God ain't past the ceiling. He's near. He's within reach. It just feels like he's far away. By the way, like you ought to feel your feelings, right? All of us ought to feel our feelings. It's unhealthy to feel, to not feel our feelings, to push them under the rug, hoping they go away. That's unhealthy. That's dysfunctional. You know what's destructive? Letting your feelings be the steering wheel for your life. You let your feelings be the steering wheel for your life and you will end up at the ditch because there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it leads to death. And the problem with us having a preconceived notion of how God would operate in our lives is it doesn't match up to the God of the very Bible that we want him to operate like. 
You say, well, what are you talking about? That's a great question. Let me answer. Thanks for asking. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Remember those guys from Sunday school? They get sentenced to death in an oven. Can you think of a better, can you think of a worse way to get sentenced to death? Sentenced to death in an oven. Why? Because they won't bow down to the pagan God of their day. They refuse to bow. What do you think the night before they were going to go out and get, the oven was going to get fired up and they were going to get incinerated? What do you think that night was like? You think they were going, dude, this is awesome. We're going to be in the Bible someday. They're begging God to not make them go to the fire. How did, where did they meet Jesus? This fourth person, where did they meet him? In the fire, not around the fire. Is it safe to say that God's greatest work in the life of those men happened in the middle of a fire, not in spite of a fire? Or the next chapter, since we're going there, how about Daniel? We all know Daniel, 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 Daniel in the lion's den, right? Again, He's more fearful of not praying than he is of a hungry lion, which is a whole series in and of itself. He's not looking forward to going in the pit. He's not going, man, these guys are finally going to know. And God shuts the mouth of the lion in the pit. He leads him there. See Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. This makes Christians uncomfortable because we have no issue with his deity, but his humanity freaks us out a little bit. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Come stay, watch, keep watch with me. Jesus basically says, man, this is too hard for me by myself. I need my friends. Which, by the way, men, if you want to be like Jesus, get connected to some other men when these moments come for you. The independence that you're being sold is not a strength for a man after God's own heart. See him face first in the dirt. His friends asleep, him begging God to not make him go to the cross. We like to rush to not my will, but your will be done because it makes us feel better. But the fact of the matter is we've all been face first in the dirt, haven't we? Begging God to not make us go. I'd like for you to consider the possibility, as difficult it is, as it is, that God is near, he is aware, he is active, and he is working in your life in spite of the challenge you're facing at this moment. That God's nearness, God's presence is not indicated by the lack of trouble or the battles that you're fighting. And the enemy wants to cut you off from your only source of peace and hope and strength in the middle of those battles. See, I had to come to the place where I discovered what freedom really was. Freedom is not the absence of something. Freedom is the presence of someone in the middle of the something. And once you discover what real freedom is and you quit putting conditions on your relationship with a God that loves you unconditionally, you will be set free. Because what can the devil do to you? If the presence of these kind of issues in your life does not determine your faith, 
He knows he can't take you out anymore, that it triggers you. I hate that word that everybody uses, but it triggers you to draw near to God in that moment and find strength in the only place you can. My life didn't change because God took away my panic attacks. My life, it changed when I discovered God's presence and power in the middle of those moments. There's nothing wrong with God. He's at work in your life. But here's number two. This is harder for most of us. And I don't know, Pastor, I'll just say it. I'm going home today. I'll just say it. This is where evangelical Christianity is missing it big time. We are leaving people with the idea that if they were just better Christians, they wouldn't battle anxiety and depression. Well-intentioned people are preaching passionate messages. Listen, look at me, everybody. Anxiety is not worry, and depression is not sadness. Quit putting that on people. That's not what it is. And let's quit guilting people over medication, by the way. Like if you have diabetes and you came to me and said, Toby, I don't know what to do, I would tell you, trust Jesus and take your medication. <laughs> right? That medication is not your source. It is a resource for you to put you in a place where God can do his work in your life. But let's not put condemnation and shame on people who already feel bad about themselves because they're fighting this uphill battle in the area of mental health, okay? How many of you have a life verse? I ask this question everywhere I go. You're going to play. All you guys have quit playing in the back. I can see you. How many of you have a life verse? Okay, life verse I'm still looking over here, too, just because I'm looking that way. Y'all can raise your hands. Um, so I've traveled this country for the last year, literally coast to coast, and uh, I hear about the same three life verses everywhere I go. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I am more than a conqueror, and nothing will separate me from the love of God. Those are unbelievably powerful true statements about us. The problem is you don't get to pick your life verse. Your life verse picks you, right? And true confession, since I'm just confessing today, I love the fact that I am an overcomer. I just don't really like stuff to overcome. <laughs> like the only way I can be who God created me to be is I have to be overcoming something to be an overcomer, right? My life verse that picked me was Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 12, he's talking about his life. This Paul who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, the greatest church planter of this side of the cross. And you want to know the secret to his life of perseverance and joy in the middle of suffering and this crazy, courageous life he lived? It happens in 2 Corinthians 12. He says this. He says, uh, because of these, this gift that was given to me, to keep me from coming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. So God gave Paul a gift to see into, he says, the third heaven. Doyle will teach you about that next week. That's too much for me. But God gave him a gift, and he said, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, 
a messenger of Satan to torment me. Be careful what you ask for, you might get it. God gave him this great gift, and he knew that the worst thing that could happen to Paul was for him to become prideful or conceited about that gift. The Bible says God opposes the proud. That's a military term in Hebrew. He lines up against the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So in order to keep me from becoming conceited, he says with this gift, there was given me, which we don't have time to go into, but that little phrase, there was given me. Oh no, God didn't do that. Who gave it to him? A thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now I could line up commentaries and scholarly books here. I could line, I literally could stack them this high. Everyone would have a different opinion about what Paul's thorn in the flesh is. So I want to help you out and you don't have to go do the research. We don't know. Nobody knows. I think God did it on purpose so you could see you in the story. I'm convinced it was, he was battling for his mental health. Why do I think that? Because he said it, it felt like he was being tormented and there are seasons where I feel like I'm being tormented. Right? And it says three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away. We don't know if it's a literal three times. Paul just wants you to know over and over and over again, he's saying, God, take this away. Y'all know what the prayers were, right? Hey, God, let me educate you on why would it be better for me not to have this. Can you imagine how many churches I could plant? Can you imagine how many more people I could reach? God, your word says, and he quotes all of these healing passages, and he's pleading with God over and over and over again. And we so churchify the Bible, man. Like nobody can give me a rational reason for why this side of the cross, this great, greatest missionary ever, would have one prayer and God would say what God said to him next. But the Lord replied to me, no. Anybody want that on a coffee cup for a life verse? <laughs> Sell t-shirts, right? But the Lord said to me, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. God told Paul, I'm not going to use your highlights. I'm going to use your lowlights. The very thing that we are scared to share is the very thing God wants to use to draw people to himself. There's nothing wrong with God, and there's nothing wrong with you. He is at work. Well, nobody in this, I don't know about this thing with these kids today, and all they talk about is anxiety and panic, and I never heard that when I was a kid. Well, because we didn't have a language for it, right? And by the way, none of us went through a pandemic when we were kids. I got grandkids who got on the bus every day for a year. In a mask, being told every morning by a bus driver, don't touch anybody else, don't get close to anybody else, don't take your mask off or you might die. You tell me what that does to a seven-year-old. And that's not a commentary on whether they should have done it or not, it just is. I know my grandson came home from school and his mom said, hey, show me the kids in your class. He didn't know who any of them were for four months because they never took their mask off. Now, you tell me developmentally for a child, what does that do to him? And how does a parent 
who can't get their eyes off of Fox News and feeling as worried as the rest of them help a kid who is struggling when they're struggling themselves. This has been the perfect storm for this epidemic that we're seeing. And I know what I'm talking about because I've been battling it for 28 years. See, I, I've just, I just always thought that God's plan for me was always about positive progress. That if I was in God's will, that my life would go up and to the right. In fact, when my life didn't go up and to the right, I would stop and say, what am I doing wrong? How do I need to adjust? Uh, when I was first diagnosed with anxiety and panic disorder. Let me tell you how it started. It started, uh, I had, my, our church was exploding in growth. My beautiful wife, two beautiful kids. Everything in my life was going great. And one night I sat up in the bed and my heart was pounding and I was breathing hard. And the longer I sat there and tried to kind of calm down, the worse it was getting, I was sweating now, my wife, she, some of you will meet her out there. She, she, what a great woman. But, like, she's in full REM sleep before her head is fully compressed in the pillow. Y'all know anybody like that? She's of no help in this moment, which I'm kind of glad because I don't want her to know this is going on. And again, there's no words for it at this time. I don't, I've never, like, in today's world, you'd go, oh, you're having a panic attack. The only word I'd ever heard was nervous breakdown. I had a great uncle, his name was Jimmy. They said he took off his clothes, walked down the middle of the street and told everybody he was Jesus. He had a nervous breakdown. I wanted no part of that. <laughs> so I didn't go, oh, I'm having a panic attack. I thought I'm losing my mind, but I'm a guy. So what I did was I got and started walking the hall of my house, my little house in Keller, Texas. And I'd walk it until I got really tired and I'd lay down in my living room, my sunken floor that had two little steps. And I put my head on the step and I'd play uh, Mercy Came A-Running by Phillips, Craig, and Dean over and over and over again. I would beg God to do something, and I heard nothing. And when it came, started coming again, I would get up and I'd walk the hall. And I'd do it until 5 in the morning because my wife is a ranch girl, and she got up every day at 5, and I wanted to be laying down before she got up. Because, again, I'm an overthinker. I'd convinced myself if she knew about it, she'd leave me. If the church found out they'd fire me, my life would be over. 17 days I did this. I had people at the church go, wow, pastor, you're looking good. Are you working out? I wanted to say, no, I'm throwing up, because I was. Until finally, I'm driving down the interstate south from North Dallas over towards Fort Worth. Our major interstate is I-35. And I decided I was going to hit a bridge abutment at 75 miles an hour, because that was the only way nobody would know that I had done it on purpose. And Micah hates when I tell that story, but I know there are some of you in this room who think, well, look at him. He's up there, and he thinks he's funny, or he's kind of funny, and he's telling us this. He doesn't know how bad mine is. Oh, I know. I know what it's like to convince yourself that the world would be better off without you. I do. And it scared me. The Lord gave me a picture, or I imagined, wherever you find yourself on the theological 
spectrum. I believe it was a Lord, a picture, a vision of my wife telling my seven-year-old daughter that daddy was never coming home. And at the last moment, I swerved and missed. And it scared me. And I did the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life. I told the truth about where I was. See, I have a fear that if I'm fully known, I won't be fully loved. The problem with that line of thinking is I was created to be fully loved. And I can't be fully loved unless I'm fully known. And I confessed and I found a counselor. We had, there were five Christian counselors 28 years ago in the Yellow Pages for the entire Metroplex, Dallas-Fort Worth. And some of you young ones, a Yellow Pages is a book and they used to toss it. <laughs> and I started the journey to get better. When, when things were going good, I would tell my wife, I'm going to write a book, man. I'm going to go write a book and I'm going to travel the country and the world and I'm going to be a picture of what being healed is all about because I didn't understand freedom yet. And when I was not doing well, I told her I was going to quit and sell cars, do something because our church deserves someone stronger than me. And through a series of events over the next few years, when I kind of went public with this battle and uh, stood on a stage in Mumbai, India in front of 10,000 pastors and told my story in a place where they said, well, they don't receive this kind of information and ask people to stand for me to pray for them. And 5,000 plus of them stood and I prayed and they're sending me unsolicited emails about how supernaturally God had lifted something off of them. And I'm going, hey, what about me, dude? I'm right here. <laughs> right? And people very close to me who had walked with me said to me, you need to write a book about your experience and I didn't want to do it. I mean, who wants to write a book about trying to run their truck into a bridge above it, right? Who wants to write a book about the way the church hurt me, even though they're trying to help me in the middle of this journey? I didn't want to do it, but my wife said I was, so I did, because I'm smart. <laughs> we wrote a book, and the book we wrote was this book, and it was called Not, it's called Not Yet. And it was really just the things I had learned over this 20-year battle with anxiety and depression, and the hard part for me wasn't just telling the stories. The hardest part was my editor told me that the last chapter had to be good. Y'all think about that. When somebody tells you something has to be good, it puts a little pressure on you, right? And so I can't figure out in the book, I'm thinking about a salmon fish, you know, I'm going to tell a salmon fish, but my kids would have made fun of me. And so I have a research assistant. She is awesome. Her name is Google. And I I Googled, what's another fish like a salmon fish? And I learned about a goby fish. A goby fish is found one species only off the big island of Hawaii. And it's unique for two reasons. Number one, it spends half of its life in the salt water of the ocean. And it spends the second half of its life in the pools on top of the mountain ranges off the big island. So there are saltwater, freshwater fish. Well, how do they get up there? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's a great question. They, when the tide is right, they start swimming up the streams, literally get, go straight up on waterfalls to get there. Well, how do they get there? Well, that's also a great question. How do they go up these waterfalls? Their bottom jaw grows out and it gives them leverage to grab a rock. And I've watched video of them jumping from rock to rock to rock, hanging on by their, and when I read it, I just stopped and cried because I said, that's my story. 
You know, when the Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God, that is much more than when you see a beautiful sky, it means God is really big. It means this. If you want to know how the kingdom of God works that you cannot see, look at his creation that you can. And that was my story, man. My story was the very thing I was trying to avoid was the very thing God was using to change my life. And so I told the story of the Gobi fish, and we released it in January of 2020 at our church. We released the book. How many of you know that releasing a book in January of 2020 was not a good idea? <laughs> but I couldn't figure out how to end the series. It was a fifth week. I hate five-week series. So my research assistant, it worked once, so I thought I'd try her again. I said, Google, teach me how to draw a fish. And I found a seven-and-a-half-minute video on how to draw a cartoon fish, and I took a legal pad, and two pencils, and for the next six hours, I started and stopped a YouTube video, and I was drawing a cartoon fish. And I called my creative team and said, hey, I need five easel boards with five big old posters on it because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell a story. They said, well, you can't draw. I said, sure, I can. I learned on YouTube yesterday. Uh, well, what's it gonna, it's going to be about the Gobi in the back of the book. What are you going to call it? I said, well, my name is Toby. It's a goby. That sounds like Jesus to me. And so I, I told this story. Here's the picture that I drew for the story of this fish named Toby the goby. That's it. And I put five easel boards and I told the story of this little fish who learned three things. Number one, you can do hard things because God is with you. See, I grew up in the don't be a baby generation. That was my dad. You too, wasn't it, brother? I always look for guys my age or around my age. Because it's like, oh, I know your leg's sticking out, but rub some dirt on it. You'll be all right. Don't be a baby. It's the reason I wouldn't talk to my dad that night. I was in tears when I was seven. I thought he'd think less of me. Don't be a baby. Well, the next generation, you guys have reacted against the destructive nature of don't be a baby. And you've picked something equally as destructive. It's, oh, you poor baby. Oh, you don't have to do that, baby. You, that's not what's tough for you. Let me take your homework to school. Let me go talk to your teacher for you. You poor baby, you're battling. Look, we're raising a generation of victims. There's a victim mentality where everybody's trying to blame their inactivity on, well, I have a panic disorder. Listen, man, you can do hard things. It is hard, but you can do it because God is with you. And sometimes winning is getting your butt off the couch when you don't have enough strength to get up and do the best you can for that day. You can do hard things. Don't tell your kids it's not hard. Don't tell them it's not. Tell them it is hard, but you can do hard things because you're not doing it alone. Look, man, the greatest gift we can give our kids is the gift of deep in their DNA knowing what their identity is, who they really are. It solves a myriad of issues in the world today. Ten years ago, I was battling for my life. I was in a cycle of I couldn't get out of that thought pattern. Some of you know, I watch you shake your heads because you're with me. And I called a pastor friend in another city, and I said, hey, man, I need some help. I, I can't get out of this loop, this it's causing this anxiety and panic. And he said, go get on the internet. And he said, go Google the 40 I am's. And you go to the drugstore, because he's old, so he called it the drugstore. And he said, and write down these statements and write the verses that go with it. And all it is, I'd never heard of it. I don't know if you had, but it's 40 statements from the Bible about who you are. I am more than a conqueror. Yeah. 
Uh, I am loved by God. I am a child of the king. I mean, and so I went and got from CVS cards and I sat there and I wrote every one of them out by hand. And he said, now make sure when you say them, you don't read them, you say them out loud. And uh, which seemed kind of weird to me until I discovered that our faith is verbal. Like we speak things into existence. It's why Jesus didn't do this when he calmed the sea. He said, peace be still. Right? It's why Jesus, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, began with, Father, I know that you have heard me. You do, why worship here is powerful. These guys are awesome. You know why worship though is powerful? It's not because they're awesome. It's because we're all saying stuff that is true. And so for 20 plus years, I have never been any place on this planet without those 40 I am's that I wrote over 20 years ago. And I'll hand them to you. Look at them. They're covered in dirt and snot <laughs> and disappointment And tears. Well, which ones do you read out? I read the ones that are the hardest for me to believe at the moment. This has become central to my life because it reminds me, look, man, I may battle anxiety, but that is not who I am. I am a overcomer. I am a child of the king. And when my condition does not, is not lined up, aligned with my position, I'm not going to let my condition win. I'm going to let what, who God says my position is win. I can do hard things because God is with me. And so can you. I'm not saying it ain't hard. I'm saying you can do it. And then number two, it's like, but you have to keep your eyes on the sun. Right? You, if you look at your problems long enough, they get bigger. If you look at, to God in the middle of it, your problems get, bigger, get smaller and God gets bigger. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the Bible says. And then the book said, uh, we can help others along the way. Because let's be honest, pain makes us narcissist. Doesn't it? Like I love my wife, 38 years. When you see her, you go, how did that woman marry him? I got one good woman to make one bad decision. I've been set for 38 years. <laughs> you know, uh, but when, she, like when my back hurts, I have some chronic back pain. I don't really care about her. I just want my back to stop hurting. And it's in giving to others in the middle of it that God brings healing to you. And so we wrote the book. My daughter-in-law had had a dream since she had been a kid that she wanted to illustrate the kid's book. She's a graphic artist. She's been contacted by Disney, others, that level that want to use her. That's how good she is. The pandemic hit. We had nothing to do. And I said, let's write a book. And we wrote this book called Toby the Gobi with those three principles and teaching kids how to draw the fish, not with a YouTube video, but with a trace thing at the back. And guess what? We wrote 40 I am's for kids in kids' language. Uh, so, because I'm, I mean, I, I love you, but I need you to understand, like fidget spinners and weighted blankets are not gonna get this done. And that's all we got to offer out there, right? So the pandemic hits, and they tell me I need to write this book. And I said, I didn't want to write the first book. And I stepped out of my role and handed it to one of my spiritual sons, and churches started calling. And I didn't want to be a kid's author. That wasn't my thing until Harvard said at the end of 2021, they released a study that said the number one indicator of a kid's mental wellness. You know what it is? 
the mental wellness of their parents. And I went, I get it. The parents who don't want to talk or feel weird about mental health, they'll do anything to help their kids. And so now my wife and I, which was not our plan, we travel 70% of the time, literally coast to coast in this country, doing what I'm doing today and doing parenting seminars where we teach parents practical ways to connect God's power to the very real issues that their kids are facing. Now look at me. 27 years ago, I tried to run into a bridge above me. And now I'm standing in California getting to talk to you sweet people today. Don't you tell me God's done with you. This battle is about as weak as our little favorite little fish says, you just keep swimming. Just get you a journey theology. Don't stop believing. You keep moving forward. You realize that your best will never be good enough. God has to make up the difference. And I want to leave you with this before I pray for you. Uh, I want to show you a picture that was sent to me just unsolicited. This picture. This little boy is seven years old. These are the 40 I am's that they can print off of our website for free. You see, this little boy, he is convinced that monsters are going to kill him. Right? And his mom was beside herself. He wouldn't get any sleep. So he picked out these five statements. He picked them himself and he taped them up beside his bed. I am safe from danger. I am strong in Christ. He told his mom, I know I'm going to be okay because I'm reading this and it reminds me that God is helping me every day. That's my firstborn grandson. His name is Gideon. I love him so much. It feels like my heart's going to explode. Now, I want you to think about this, man. 51 years ago, a little seven-year-old boy was saying, please, God, don't let me drown. And if this whole deal was that that kid wouldn't feel as alone as I felt in that moment, then this whole deal has been worth it for me. And there's not a day that goes by that I don't ask God to supernaturally lift this off my life. But look at me, everybody. He doesn't have to do it for me to believe he's real, he's working, he loves me, and he's got a plan for my life. My goal is not to not have a panic attack. My, God, my goal is to go out swinging, baby. I'm going to keep walking, keep hoping, keep believing, and try to keep helping as many parents as I can. Help their kids get healthy so that they'll be healthy to help their kids live the life that they've always wanted. Your road is not going to be easy. I don't think it's supposed to be. I think anything in life worth having is an uphill climb at some level, but it's worth it, man. So can I pray for you today? That'd be all right? Y'all don't know me. I'm not going to do anything weird. Would you close your eyes? I just want people to have a private moment. I just don't want anybody looking around wondering what somebody else is doing. Uh, so I've been up here, like, just opening my guts to you guys, which, by the way, isn't, still isn't easy all the time. Uh, I'm just thinking if I did it, maybe you could do it. Maybe you could just stand wherever you are in this room. Nobody's looking but me, and my glasses are foggy anyway. 
just stand if you're struggling. If in some area of your mental wellness you're struggling, just stand up. Just take a moment. I just want to ask you to stand up because I want to dispel this lie that you believe that you're the only one. Well, just stand up. And like if you're standing, you can open your eyes because I want you to look around the room. Everybody else keep their eyes shut, but just stand. And I want you to see like you're not in the minority. This isn't your fault. You're not less of a Christian. God wants to help you. Maybe he brought you here today, this 4th of July weekend, when you thought about phoning it in for this moment right now. Maybe that was it. Can we believe that together? I got enough faith for you today. My mustard seed will move that mountain for you. Just stand there for a moment. Just, Father, would you come and fill these people with your power? Just open your hands, everybody, if you're standing there. Not weird, but just open them. It's a sign. I'm I'm ready. God, would you bring something to these sweet people that they do not possess at the moment? They don't have the strength that they need, but you do. Would you fill them again with resurrection power? Most of all, would you give them hope again that they're going to break generational patterns for their kids and their grandkids that come after them, that you're going to use them, you're not done with them. And Father, I pray that even tonight as they sleep, I, I claim the promise of Zephaniah that you will sing over them, you will impart into their spirit something that it's hard to get into their heads. And that there would be a renewing and a refreshing and a progress forward that they haven't experienced in such a long time. And Father, most of all, I'm just grateful that you're showing them physically today that it's not just them. They're not the only one. They're not the exception to the rule. And that you want to do exceedingly abundantly beyond what they could ask or imagine according to your power that is at work within them. So fill them, Father, to the measure of all your fullness. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. We hope you enjoyed this message, and remember, we also have live services out in our West Auditorium on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings. Or you can always join us live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time.